0: Hi folks, it's Rob from the Space Monkey X Audio Workshop. For a few years, I wrote, produced, and hosted a podcast called When You Hear This Sound, a show about the weird and wonderful world of read-along record books and storybook vinyl. As my life got more and more hectic, the episodes became fewer and farther between, until finally I stopped production in April of 2016. As you listen to these old episodes, please note that the show notes will not be as extensive as they originally were. So if you want to know more about something I mentioned in the episode, check the audio workshop's website, spacemonkeyx.net. But you may need to do a little googling on your own. However, if there is a book included with the record, you will be able to find scans of it at the website. So please enjoy this archived episode of When You Hear This Sound, and be sure to look for new ventures into vinyl here at the Space Monkey X Audio Workshop in the future.
1: Hello, boys and girls. I'm your Peter Pan Storyteller. This is the story of The Last Starfighter. This is the story of Gremlins. This is the story of Tron. This is the story of Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is the story of The Empire Strikes Back. You can read along with me in your book. You can follow the story along with me. Every time you hear this sound... Every time you hear this sound... Turn the pages when you hear this sound. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the computer sound like this. Let's, let's begin, let's begin now.
0: Ever since our humble beginnings as the 13 rebellious colonies, America has been preoccupied with concern about a revolution from within our ranks. From the Salem witch trials to the brother-against-brother battles of the Civil War, to the Red Scare of the 1950s, to the modern terrorist sleeper cell, we have always feared the enemy living next door. The idea that an insurgent may be hiding in plain sight, he may look like us, he may talk like us, but doesn't think like us, has terrified our nation for generations. It's no surprise, then, that John Carpenter's 1982 film, The Thing, about a shape-shifting alien infiltrating an Arctic research base, should strike such a chord with Americans during the heart of the Cold War. However, the story of The Thing goes back much farther than the Reagan administration, shining a light on the darkest corners of our paranoid minds for nearly 100 years. in february 1938 adolf hitler and his nazi party rose to power in germany and began the reign of terror across much of western europe refugees flooded out of occupied regions bringing with them a legitimate fear that fifth columnist fighters were hiding among them ready to incite violence in the countries that took them in
1: are you a member of the communist party have you ever been a member are you a a member of the communist Party? party are you now have you ever been a member of the communist party
0: a few months later in may The House Committee on Un-American Activities was founded to root out so-called anti-American organizations like communist labor unions and fascist political groups operating within the United States. Not only did this committee publicly accuse many people of having unpopular political ties, but the committee's most egregious act was the Yellow Report, a document that would later help justify one of the most devastating violations of civil rights in American history, the internment of thousands of Japanese Americans during World War II, out of fear they were still loyal to Japan and could act as an insurgent force within our borders. It was under this blanket of paranoia that astounding science fiction magazine printed Who Goes There? by influential author and editor John W. Campbell under the pen name Don A. Stewart in August of 1938. The novella tells of an Arctic expedition that discovers a flying saucer buried under millions of years of ice. After accidentally destroying the ship, they find the frozen body of the alien pilot near the crash site and cart it back to their base. To study the creature, the body is thought out, only to come back to life, devouring and then replicating the physical form of one of the crew to disguise its presence. When the men discover the creature exists, they realize they must ensure it never reaches civilization, where it would be able to replicate itself with impunity, eventually taking over the population of the entire world. To do that, they must find out who is the thing.
1: i this hearing. Let me answer, let me that question, no, I. I think we've got a much more serious situation now in communist infiltration of the CIA. Me beyond words. Well, we
0: the culture of fear in America continued even after we won World War II, shifting focus to our former allies, the Soviet Union. Although no war was ever officially declared, the two superpowers began a battle of philosophies that mostly played out on the global political, military, and economic stages. As the two jockeyed to gain an advantage, espionage became a common tool of this Cold War, with both sides stealing secrets from one another in an effort to stay ahead in the atomic arms race. The Cold War was just ramping up in 1950 when Senator Joseph McCarthy accused 81 members of the U.S. State Department of being undercover, card-carrying commies. He would later go on to accuse nearly 200 people of having communist ties, leaving a path of ruined careers and reputations in his wake. A year later in 1951, Who Goes There was adapted as the film The Thing from Another World, the directorial debut of Christian Nyby, a longtime editor for Howard Hawks on classic movies like The Big Sleep and Red River. Observant cinephiles at the time noticed that the film features a look and tone very similar to Howard Hawks' work. This led some to speculate that he not only served as producer, but also a de facto director, giving Nyby the credit so he could become a member of the Directors Guild in order to get work in television. In post-production interviews, some members of the cast and crew noted the constant presence of Hawks on the set, leaving them unsure just who really was calling the shots. No matter who was at the helm, the film was a critical and financial success, despite many changes made to the original storyline. Here, The Thing doesn't take the form of any of the crew, but instead appears as a Frankensteinian monster played by James Arness, who would later go on to play Marshal Matt Dillon in Gunsmoke. The creature, to borrow a line from the film, is an intellectual carrot, a plant-based organism that needs blood to survive. Due to its cellular makeup, the creature is able to regenerate severed limbs and bullets have no effect, making it a formidable enemy. The crew tries dousing it in kerosene and lighting it on fire, which does at least slow the creature down. So in the end, they set an electrical trap that fries the beast, reducing it to a harmless pile of ash. (laughs) today the thing from another world is considered a science fiction classic often called one of the best sci-fi movies of the 1950s its influence is immeasurable with directors like ridley scott and john frankenheimer citing it as one of their favorite films steven spielberg even borrowed the famous last line from the film watch the skies as the working title for close encounters of the third kind few years after the release of The Thing from Another World, the Cold War entered a new era of ever-escalating threats lobbed from both sides of the Iron Curtain. It was a period of civil war in many regions across the globe, including Cuba, where Fidel Castro would eventually establish a communist-style government with support from the Soviet Union. With the Reds less than 100 miles away from the United States, the fear of communist agents infiltrating our borders became even more acute. Later, civil war would break out in Vietnam, with both sides backed by the United States and the Soviet Union. While there wasn't as much concern about the war coming to America, the idea that a small, under-trained, but committed fighting force was winning against a global superpower became a real eye-opener for many Americans. If it could happen there, who's to say it couldn't happen here? After Vietnam, the Russians got a taste of their own medicine as they tried to overcome a less advanced fighting force in the mountains of Afghanistan, but they too discovered that a group of tenacious civilians dedicated to their cause can hold their ground against all odds. And it was in this continued environment of civil unrest that producer David Foster approached director John Carpenter about an adaptation of Who Goes There. With a solid string of hits beginning with 1976 critically acclaimed Assault on Precinct 13, his breakout genre-defining film Halloween in 1978, and 1981's gritty urban action thriller Escape from New York, Carpenter's Hollywood clout was at an all-time high. But as a fan of both the 1938 novella and the 1951 film, Carpenter accepted the project immediately. the major things that drew Carpenter to the project was the challenge of bringing the shape-shifting alien creature to life. He wanted to avoid putting a man in a rubber suit, as had been done for the 1951 film, but he questioned if special effects had advanced enough in the ensuing 30 years to meet his expectations. Little did he know he'd find his answer right under his nose. Like so many kids of the 1960s and 70s, Rob Bottin had grown up watching monster movies on television and reading about them in the pages of famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. Combining his passion for horror movies and his artistic abilities, at the age of 14, he submitted creature designs to special effects master Rick Baker, who hired Botine and took him under his wing. From there, Botine worked on numerous projects, including the 1976 remake of King Kong, Roger Corman's Piranha, and Star Wars' famous Cantina scene. In 1980, Botine was hired to do makeup effects, as well as play a supporting role in John Carpenter's The Fog. While on set, Carpenter revealed that his next project was a remake of The Thing from Another World, and confident in Botine's work, Carpenter wanted him to handle the special effects. As a passionate 22-year-old who had just been handed the reins for the special effects on a major motion picture, Botine jumped in with both feet. He quickly came up with creature designs that were anything but a man in a suit. Featuring anatomical aspects of humans, dogs, and even alien creatures the thing might have assimilated with in the past, Botine's designs were ambitious, but so was he. Over the next 13 months, Botine worked day and night, seven days a week, to bring the special effects of The Thing to life. He worked so hard that when the production was over, he had to be hospitalized to recoup. Unfortunately, test audiences were somewhat put off by the effects, calling them disgusting or too disturbing, which spoiled their overall view of the film. History has proven kinder to Botine's work, though, as The Thing is now often cited as one of the best examples of practical special effects in the modern era. The film features many dynamite performances from its all-male cast, most notably Carpenter mainstay Kurt Russell as helicopter pilot R.J. McCready. But what is perhaps most memorable is the film's overall tone of dread, layered on top of paranoia and fear. Unlike in The Thing from Another World, in Carpenter's version, anyone could be the alien infiltrator. So when you factor in long-held Cold War concerns, as well as growing unease over the so-called gay plague, today known as HIV-AIDS, that was just taking root in California and New York, America was primed for a film about unseen dangers lurking from within. The Thing was released on June 25th, 1982. With a budget of $15 million, it made a disappointing $20 million at the U.S. box office. The main factor in its underperformance is that it was released shortly after Another Thing from Another World landed on planet Earth. Steven Spielberg's E.T., The Extraterrestrial, was released on June 11th, just a few weeks before The Thing, and wound up dominating the box office for the foreseeable future. While it wasn't as big of a factor, Ridley Scott's much-anticipated follow-up to Alien, Blade Runner, was released the same weekend as The Thing as well. Between the family-friendly Alien and the dystopian neo-noir thriller, Carpenter's hard-R-rated monster flick had no chance of becoming a blockbuster. Oddly enough, because the film underperformed, and Universal wanted to maximize its return on the investment, They sold the broadcast rights inexpensively, making it a mainstay of cable TV in the 1980s and 90s. It was here that The Thing finally found its audience in unsupervised key kids and channel-surfing night owls looking to avoid infomercials. Soon there was a growing cult of fans who championed the film, helping to spread The Thing like a virus among Gen Xers who watched it almost as a rite of passage. Hello? Jennifer?
1: Did you just see this happen, Jennifer? That I I have never seen any. It looks like a movie. I saw a large plane, like a jet, go immediately headed directly into the World Trade Center. It, it, it just flew into it, into the into the other tower, coming from south to north. I watched the plane fly into the World Trade Center.
0: On September 11, 2001, 19 men changed American history forever. The Cold War had been over for a decade, but thanks to their actions, America had now entered a new war: the war on terror. To protect itself from additional attacks by small, dedicated groups of undercover terrorists known as sleeper cells, Americans willfully gave up many of their civil rights as part of the U.S. Patriot Act. Today, our airports are on lockdown, our government is listening in on every phone call, reading every email, and we live in fear of anyone who faces Mecca five times a day. We also entered into more wars with less sophisticated but committed fighters who made it impossible for our superior armed forces to truly gain a foothold in the Middle East. And it was in this climate that 2011 saw the release of a prequel to the 1982 film, also titled The Thing. The movie told the story of the Norwegian camp that digs the creature out of the ice before MacReady and company encounter it. As a nod to the original film, the production used mostly practical effects to bring the creature to life. Unfortunately, the studio panicked at the last minute and replaced most of the practical effects with CGI. Many feel it was this decision that caused the film to underperform at the box office, bringing in only $27 million on a budget of $38 million. Over the years, there have also been other sequels and adaptations, including a first-person shooter video game that picks up shortly after the events of the film, a few limited series of comic books from Dark Horse Publishing, and perhaps the most interesting idea is a 2010 short story written by Peter Watts for Clark's World magazine titled The Things. In the Hugo Award-nominated story, the events of the film play out from the creature's point of view, presenting a sympathetic slant to the thing's concept of assimilation. Rather than murdering the host, the creature sees the assimilation as a beautiful communion shared between two souls, giving us a very different outlook at how the film unfolds. Despite its cult status, John Carpenter's The Thing is far from direct-to-cable TV trash. A combination of Cold War paranoia, early AIDS epidemic panic, and its eye-popping special effects have helped the film hold up incredibly well, even against the CGI monstrosities of the modern age. Thanks in part to the film's rabid fanbase, critics have since re-examined the movie, and many now see it as one of the best genre films of the 1980s. And chances are, we haven't seen The Last of the Thing yet. The fact of the matter is, as long as we fear the enemy among us, as long as we worry that our neighbor is plotting to destroy our way of life, as long as we continue living in a bubble of paranoia, the thing will continue to have relevance for us and for future generations of Americans. With that in mind, it may just be one of the most defining tales of the 20th century and beyond. If you've ever seen The Thing, it might surprise you to hear that it was adapted as a kid's read-along record book. Well, in all honesty, it wasn't. If you recall from recent episodes, I mentioned that I had a big, super-secret project that I've been working on for months, and I'm proud to present it for you now, The Thing Read-Along Record Book. I had the idea back in 2013 that it would be fun to create a read-along record book for a title that would have never received the read-along record book treatment. The Thing seemed like the perfect candidate. So earlier this year, I rewrote the film, condensing it down to 24 pages of roughly 100 words each, and then I started lining up actors. I could have easily taken clips from the film and just edited them together, but instead I opted to go the full read-along record book route and ask some of my creative friends to play the parts of R.J. McCready and the rest of the Outpost 31 crew. As most of the cast was spread across various points in the Midwest, it took months to get everyone's dialogue recorded, and I still had a lot of work to do after that. Using a combination of the actors' recordings, MP3s of the original musical score, Ripped audio from the film, as well as my own Foley techniques and open-source sound effects, I spent the next few months editing the story together. It was a labor of love, but I'm really happy with the results. With the audio locked, it was time to turn my focus to the book portion of the project. I used screenshots from the Blu-ray release of the film, and put them into a simple layout that was reminiscent of those you'll find in a Buena Vista record book of the 1980s. Naturally, you can download the record book over in the show notes at whenyouhearthissound.com. Oh, and uh, just one more thing. This is an audio production of The Thing, an R-rated film, so there are some four-letter words and descriptions of violence that might not be appropriate for all listeners. Please proceed at your own discretion. And now, without further ado, the Space Monkey X audio presentation of John Carpenter's The Thing. This is the story of John Carpenter's The Thing. You can read along with me in your book. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Let's begin now. Somewhere in Antarctica lies Outpost 31, an American research base established to gather scientific data about this strange, barren continent. Aside from a few outline structures, the base is a cramped maze of hallways and doors that connect the many rooms within the compound. Research has ended for the season, and the 12 men stationed here have hunkered down just before the harsh arctic winter sets in. Today, most of the men have gathered in the rec room to relax with games and music. However, helicopter pilot R.J. McCready has secluded himself in his cabin outside. McCready pours a glass of whiskey and punches in his next move on the chess wizard computer game.
1: Your move, king to rook one. My move, Rook to Knight 6. Check me. Check me. Cheating bitch. Have a drink on me.
0: McCready pauses as he hears a familiar but out of place sound.
1: What the hell is that?
0: McCready steps out into the freezing Arctic, and the other men soon join him, as a helicopter with Norwegian markings buzzes overhead. Just then, a dog comes running over the icy plain and heads straight for the outpost. The helicopter lands and two men jump out, One pulls the pin on a grenade, but it slips out of his hand and lands buried in the snow. Moments later, the device explodes, taking the helicopter with it. Unfazed, the other man walks towards the American base and raises a rifle. He yells something in his native tongue before firing at the dog. The Americans scatter while the Norwegian continues shooting at the dog as it runs deeper into the camp. Thankfully, the crazed gunman is brought down by Outpost Commander Gary and his trusty revolver. Brady and base physician Copper take a helicopter to the Norwegian camp to look for answers. Instead, all they find are more questions. Much of the abandoned base has been gutted by fire, and the few rooms left are in disarray. While searching for clues, they discover the body of a man who slit his own neck and wrists with a straight razor frozen blood hangs from the wounds like macabre icicles. In a back room lies another mystery, a large block of ice that has been hollowed out. Nearby, gas cans sit next to a mangled mess of smoldering flesh and bone.
1: What's that, Mac? Is that a a man in there or something? Whatever it is, they burned it up in a hurry. Let's load it onto the chopper. Blair should probably see it.
0: At Outpost 31, the men inspect the bizarre burned corpse. The body appears to be two people that have been mashed together like pieces of clay and then partially pulled apart. Deformed appendages, some not even recognizable as human, jut out at odd angles. But the most horrifying feature is the two faces that have somehow been fused together in a twisted, eternal scream. Meanwhile, Clark, the dog handler, introduces the new dog to the camp's sled dog pack. After Clark leaves the pen, the animal begins panting, and its entire body starts to shake uncontrollably. Suddenly, the dog's face peels open revealing a thick, bloody tentacle underneath. Tendrils come streaming out from the creature's body, wriggling like worms on the end of a hook, wrapping nearby dogs in their grasp. The panicked barking of the dogs draws them into the cage. Clark backs away.
1: I don't know what the hell's in there, but it's weird and pissed off, whatever it is.
0: The creature has morphed into a shapeless mass of hairless skin and tentacles, A dog's head grows from the middle of its body, snapping and biting to keep the men at bay. Two oozing claws sprout from the creature's back and break through the roof, pulling itself up to the rafters. Before it can make its escape, though, Childs the mechanic blasts it with a flamethrower. Senior Biologist Blair examines the charred remains in his lab
1: and comes to a horrifying conclusion. What we're talking about here is an organism that imitates other life forms. When this thing attacked our dogs, it tried to absorb them and shape its own cells to imitate them. We just got to it before it had time to finish. Theoretically, it could imitate one of us.
0: later the men watch a videotape recovered from the Norwegian camp that appears to be footage of an archaeological dig out on the ice McCready and a small team fly to the dig site and find an enormous crater inside is the wreckage of what can only be described as a flying saucer Jesus how long you figure this has been in the ice McCready asks Norris the base geologist looks around
1: I'd say the ice it's buried in,
0: it's 100,000 years old. At least. Not far from the crater is a hole in the ground, the same size and shape as the hollowed-out block of ice found at the Norwegian base. Back at Outpost 31, McCready lays out his theory.
1: Thousands of years ago, it crashes. And this thing gets thrown out, or crawls out. And it ends up freezing in the ice. The Norwegians dig it up, they cart it back... It thaws out, wakes up, probably not in the best of moods. Child says what all the other men are thinking. I just cannot believe any of this voodoo bullshit.
0: Back in his lab, Blair runs a computer simulation showing the alien's assimilation process on a cellular level. It only takes a few seconds for an intruder cell to make a perfect imitation of a host cell. Let's see.
1: Using this data, the probability that one of our team members is infected is seventy-five percent. The data is extrapolated. Twenty-seven thousand hours just over three years. To infect the entire world. After a moment of quiet
0: contemplation, Blair takes a revolver from his desk drawer. Windows, the radio operator, and Bennings, the meteorologist, move the twisted alien bodies into the storage room.
1: Bennings, you, uh, got the keys? We're supposed to lock this room up tight. Get him from Gary. I want to get some stuff out of here.
0: As Windows leaves, neither man sees the sheet covering the corpses move ever so slightly. Moments later, Windows returns to find Bennings in the corner covered in blood, a tentacle snaking out from beneath the sheet wrapped around his convulsing body. Horrified, Windows runs for help. The creature, taking Benning's form, flees through a window. McCready sounds the alarm and they follow it outside. Weakened from its transformation, the thing falls to its knees and the men surround it. It isn't Benning's, yells McCready. Slowly, the creature lifts its head, revealing misshapen claws instead of human hands. Then, the thing turns to McCready and opens its mouth, releasing an otherworldly howl. McCready quickly spills a barrel of fuel onto the creature and ignites it with a flare. The monster's death moan pierces the cold night sky. The men dig a pit and burn the remaining alien bodies. As they watch the flames consume the creatures, Childs asks the obvious
1: question. If that wasn't Bennings, how do we know who is human? McCready replies, now This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's won. There's a storm hitting us in six hours. And we're going to find out who's who. McCready looks around. Hey, where's Blair?
0: barricaded himself inside the radio room with a pistol, taking an axe to all the equipment and raving like a madman.
1: Nobody gets in and out of here! Nobody! You think that thing wanted to be a dog? That thing wanted to be us!
0: When his ammo runs out, the men rush Blair and isolate him by locking him in the tool shed outside. Aside from the radio, Blair sabotaged the helicopter, the snow crawler, and even killed the rest of the dogs. Outpost 31 is now completely cut off from the world. While the storm whirls outside, the lights go out in part of the complex. In the darkness, Assistant Biologist Fuchs disappears. McCready pairs the men into search parties, and they head out into the night. Later, Nalls, the station cook, returns alone.
1: Mac and I were up checking around his cabin. I found this. Look!
0: Nalls pulls a shredded shirt from his coat. R.J. McCready is stenciled on the inside.
1: I made sure I got ahead of him and left him out there in the storm. He's one of them.
0: Just then, a window breaks in the storage room. The men rush in to find a freezing MacReady holding a flare to the fuse on a bundle of dynamite.
1: Anyone messes with me and the whole camp goes. Now back off.
0: Way off. He inches his way to the door, but is jumped by Norris and Nalls. MacReady is able to fight them off, but Norris collapses during the melee and stops breathing. Get copper. And bring the others. From now on, nobody gets out of my sight. While Dr. Copper administers CPR to Norris on a nearby table, McCready holds a flamethrower on the other men. You're gonna have to sleep sometime, Mac.
1: Well, I'm a real light sleeper, child. And if anyone tries to wake me... McCready
0: holds the flame closer to the dynamite. Meanwhile, Copper yells, Windows! We let defibrillator over here! Clear!
1: nothing again clear
0: as copper applies the defibrillator paddles again norris's torso splits open copper's hands fall inside a pair of monstrous jaws with jagged teeth clamp shut on copper's arms severing them just below the elbow wriggling tentacles and a creature with a distorted human face explode from norris's chest The thing howls as it dangles like a twisted spider from the rafters. McCready steps forward and torches the creature with his flamethrower. Amidst the flames, no one notices Norris's head pull itself away from the burning body and fall to the floor below. There, it sprouts eye stalks and insect like legs before scurrying away. Assistant Mechanic Palmer catches the creature out of the corner of his eye and turns.
1: You gotta be
0: fucking kidding. The thing screams as McCready douses it with fire. Back in the rec room, McCready reveals his plan to see who's human. Watching Norse gave me the
1: idea. Every piece of them was an individual animal with a built in desire to protect its own life. Now, when a man bleeds, it's just tissue. But blood from one of you things will crawl away. It'll try to survive when it's attacked. Each man slices his thumb with
0: a scalpel, spilling blood into separate petri dishes. McCready then touches the samples with a bare wire that's been heated under the flamethrower. One by one, the red-hot wire sizzles in the men's uninfected blood. But when the wire touches Palmer's blood, it screams and leaps out of the dish to escape the searing heat. His true identity revealed. Palmer's skull splits in two and a tentacle lashes out like a tongue wrapping around Windows' neck pulling him into the massive jaws where Palmer's face used to be. As the men scream the creature thrashes Windows' bloodied body like a ragdoll. Macready hits the thing with the flamethrower the enraged, fiery figure only breaks through the wall and stumbles outside. McCready tosses a stick of dynamite, and the creature explodes into a million pieces. Later, Childs looks out the window into the Arctic night. Sadly, McCready interrupts his brief moment of
1: serenity. Childs, we're going out to give Blair the test. If he tries to make it back here and we're not with him, burn him.
0: Outside of the tool shed, the door hangs open and Blair is gone. McCready notices some loose floorboards and finds a tunnel has been dug underneath the shack. At the bottom of the tunnel is a piecemeal spaceship that Blair, or whatever he is, has been constructing from parts found in the shed. Suddenly, the power goes out across the camp. The alien's plan now becomes clear to McCready.
1: It got back inside and blew the generator. Six hours, it'll be a hundred below in here. It wants to freeze now. It's got no way out. Just wants to sleep in the cold until the rescue team finds it. Whether we make it out or not, we can't let that thing freeze again. Maybe we'll just warm things up a little around here. We're not getting out of here alive, bud. Neither is that thing. The men throw dynamite down the
0: tunnel to destroy the spaceship and then return to base. Childs has disappeared. Using Molotov cocktails, the men set fire to Outpost 31 before heading downstairs to the generator room to finish the job. In the tunnels below the base, Knolls and Gary are quietly dispatched by the monster, leaving only McCready alive to detonate the dynamite charges. But before he can complete his mission, the creature bursts out of the ground. A horrific combination of man, dog, and beast that towers over McCready. Creedy quickly dives to safety and retrieves a lit stick of dynamite. He yells defiantly before throwing the TNT
1: at the creature. Yeah, well, fuck you too.
0: Explosions rock the arctic landscape, yet somehow, two figures emerge from the rubble.
1: McCready, you're the only one who made it? Not the only one. Where were you, Childs? Thought I saw Blair. I went out after him. Got lost in the storm. Childs looks around. Fire's got the temperature up all over the camp. Won't last long, though. Neither will we. how we make it? Maybe we shouldn't. Well, what'll do we do? Why don't we just wait here for a while, see what
0: happens. The men warily share a bottle of whiskey as Outpost 31 burns down around them.